0: Matthew chapter 24, let's begin in verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Kingdom and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is, in, is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already come tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these signs, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know your what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made r- ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blesses that servant whom his master when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master's delaying is coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize the sobriety of this passage and the importance of this passage in many ways, Lord, but we also recognize that there's so much that we haven't understood yet. And we pray, Lord, that You, by Your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher this morning and that You would apply these things to our hearts, Lord, and prepare us. Thank You, Father, that You are not out of control in this world. As we see things getting worse and worse, we recognize, Lord, that You're sovereign and that everything is going exactly according to your timetable help us to be comforted in that lord help us to be looking for the blessed hope the lord jesus lord knowing that he's going to come for us and snatch us away we are so grateful lord that we we know him we're so grateful lord that our names are written in the lamb's book of life so bless this time set it aside for your holy use we are grateful for the preeminence of your word and how you're and its place that you've put it in our lives we commit it to you in jesus name amen Please be seated. The Lord Jesus is only a few days from ending his public ministry. We've seen him confront the religious leaders. They were plotting his death already. He's confronting them with their lack of fruit and misleading people. We saw that last week in chapter 23. And so he is... Continuing his preparation to leave this earth. He's preparing his disciples. We see from other gospels, especially the gospel of John. Half of the gospel of John is devoted to him preparing his disciples for his departure, but we'll see that when we get there. So today we're going to look at what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because it was given on the Mount of Olives, and the discourse is Jesus speaking and and proclaiming things that are very, very important related to the future, related to a lot of things that we will see. The disciples begin this whole chapter by asking some questions, and and boy, did they get some answers far greater than probably what they ever thought was possible. And what Jesus is going to illuminate or reveal to, to them and to us is all about this seven-year tribulation period. We went through the book of Revelation verse by verse. You can go on our website and go through the whole book verse by verse if you'd like to get caught up on that book or any book. But as we saw when we went through the book of Revelation, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation and Daniel prophesied this in chapter 9 and he gave a whole calculation there and this is really Daniel's 70th week and it's it's 70 it's seven years and and so this this period of time is also referred to as Jacob's trouble in the in the, the scriptures and so We've seen as we've gone through the book of Revelation that this is a very, very intense time. And we looked at it from another vantage point, kind of from, from heaven's vantage point in a sense, like as if we were in heaven watching what's going on down here on earth during the seven year tribulation. This is a little bit different. This is like what it's like on the earth as a certain type of person that we'll get into in a moment experiencing this from the earth standpoint. So kind of it's gracious of God to reveal heaven's standpoint, and earth's standpoint of the same events. There are keys to understanding this chapter that some miss, and it all has to do with some questions, uh, or has to do with three things that Jesus is dealing with. First of all, to understand this chapter, you have to understand the questions Jesus is answering, number one. Number two, uh, you have to understand who is this teaching primarily for, and then three to key to understanding this chapter is what Jesus' second coming meant to them. That's very important. When we go through it, you'll see what Jesus' second coming meant to Jews or Christian Jews, uh, or Jewish Christians, I should say will help us understand what Jesus is revealing because he knows that the disciples that are asking these questions, they he understands that they're coming from a certain perspective. They're expecting certain things. They are coming from a reference point that for us Gentiles looking at this in our culture 2,000 years later almost, it's hard for us to understand what they are actually asking helps us understand what Jesus is actually answering so that we can know exactly what he's saying and how it applies to us. So the context is very, very important. Let's start in verse one. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down so Jesus is coming out of the temple area we're told there and his disciples wanted to show him the different buildings of the temple complex uh, I don't know if Jesus had missed that before or I don't know why they thought that he needed to see those things uh, but they, they did that nevertheless. And it was important to them. This temple meant a lot to the disciples. They're impressed with it. It was, in many ways, kind of their, their identity in, in, in a certain, by, just as a Jew, basically. I mean, the Jews love the temple. Right now, if you go to Israel, there's the only, the temple's not left at all, but the retaining wall that went around the temple complex, part of that is still left. And that's referred to as the wailing wall, because it's the only part of the, of the, any of the structure that was in that general area at all that's left over from that time period. So they believe it's holy. So they will go and you've watched videos of, of the, of them, you know, kind of rocking and they're praying and they're putting little pieces of paper that have prayers on them in the cracks of, of the wall there and so forth. It's segregated by sex. So the men are on one side, the women on the other. You have to wash your hands. You have to put something over your head. There's a lot of tradition that you have to fall in line with to be able to pray there. I actually had a, um, Ultra Orthodox ascetic Jew asked me for money at the wailing wall. And I, and I just said, you know, me being ornery, I can be that way. You guys know that. But, uh, you know, I'm just like, what? This is a holy place. You're asking me for money and I'm a Gentile. And he was, he put his head down. He's just totally ashamed, you know, and, and, and uh, I said, you know, this, I don't want to give you, you know, any money, but this is a place. Come on. You know better than this. And, and so, um, that was interesting to add to my, add to my trip there. So, and I was sure it was interesting to him to be rebuked by a Gentile there, but I mean, he, he was asking for money. And so, um, you know, he's not supposed to do that according to his belief. So, um, so anyway, th- this, this part of the temple there that they're looking at there, Herod the great, uh, had been building this whole temple area for over 40 years and, and it would continue past him for another 20 years. This whole area here. So they are likely showing the Lord Jesus kind of new developments or new additions to some of the buildings. Notice it says the temple buildings. They're showing the buildings of the temple. The temple itself was only one building and it wasn't very big. It would probably fit almost in this room. I know it wasn't as wide as this room for sure. It probably went from this wall to the beginning of the sound booth and was probably about the length of this of these two walls. It wasn't very big. And, but the whole, there were other buildings that they added on and so forth. And what Herod did is that he expanded it. He expanded all those, he was a great builder. And he wanted to appease the Jews and get on their good side, and so forth. And and so he expanded the, the that area, he enlarged it, he put, he made it more beautiful. So we're, we're talking potentially uh, polished marble with gold leaf over it. You can imagine the sun coming up in the morning, shining on the temple that's covered in in gold leaf, and so forth. Beautiful. It's just a beautiful picture of God's. You know, representing God's presence and all of that. And the disciples, just like any Jew at that time, would be so enamored with it. So just, this is the best that it could possibly be. Now, Solomon's temple was way better than that temple. And those that had seen both, had outlived the Babylonian captivity and seen the new temple that Zerubbabel built and so forth, and Nehemiah helped with the wall and all of those things, they were grieved because of how the new temple was compared to Solomon's temple. Nothing even came close to Solomon's temple compared to that second temple. But Jesus burst their bubble. (laughs) He says, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And this happened in AD 70. The general, Roman general Titus came. You can even go to Rome today and look at the Arch of Titus that's dedicated to him for many of his conquests, but, but also for the conquest of, of Jerusalem. And it actually has engraved in that arch uh, a menorah and all these things that they carried away from the temple and, and these precious things and so forth. But he did not really want to do that. The, the Jews were so rebellious related to Rome, not submitting to Rome and, and all these things. They just finally had no choice but to do it. And so Josephus, the Jewish historian, records the details, if you want to read it, in in a book called, um, The War of the Jews. And he, he shows in detail what happened with this war and basically gets a lot of specific detail in there about this fulfillment, Jesus' prophecy being fulfilled with the temple being destroyed. And, and you can see the foundation stones thrown down. If you go down 30 feet in Jerusalem, there are places where you can see these Stones still in a pile underground from when they were thrown down. There's other places closer to the surface where there's a pile of big stones that haven't been moved since that time. This literally happened. This came to pass. Now, notice in verse 3, he says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus and his disciples left the temple area. They walked through the Kidron Valley up to the road that leads to Bethany, went all the way up in on top of the Mount of Olives. That's where they're at right now. And so you can imagine the, 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 the disciples thinking, you know, I bet you it was quiet on the way to being on top of the Mount of Olives, them thinking about, what did he just say? He just said that this temple is going to be destroyed? I mean, you can imagine them just the anxiety i mean this was in many ways their identity as jews i mean they were transitioning from that obviously because they're christians and they're disciples of the lord jesus but that's still so much part of their culture i mean in the book of acts you see peter and john and the rest of them they went to the temple for for prayers and so forth uh, you know they were still very very jewish and and so here they they are uh, on the top of the mount of olives there and so they thought that they would ask um jesus about this and so they say you know when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age and again these questions these two questions are very important to understanding the chapter remember as we've gone through the book of Matthew I've reminded all of us that it's the book of Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew the Messiah very Jewish in nature and I've said that all the way through because the you kind of yield the true understanding of many passages, understanding that this is written to Jews to them to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So the context of the book is true for Matthew 24 too. It's written to Jews primarily to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's writing to a remnant of Jews who received the Messiah in the seven-year tribulation period. They're called uh, tribulation saints. And we saw that when we went through the book of Revelation. They Many of them get martyred for their faith. And so forth. So Jesus's Jewish disciples at that time when He's speaking to them are representative, in a sense, of these tribulation Jewish saints. Because they're Jewish and they're disciples. And so will be those that come to know Christ as Jews through the 144,000. There's going to be 144,000 male Virgin Jewish men who receive Jesus as their Messiah, they're going to evangelize the world. Um, and there's gonna be other ways that God reaches the world too at that time, but they're gonna evangelize, and so those those are what's called the God's always had a remnant with Israel. But we're talking about a special remnant because they're going to be completed Jews, and it's what people we like to say related to them receiving their Messiah. They're gonna be disciples, they're gonna be believers, but they're gonna have this Jewish background so it's very important to understand that because it he's speaking to a it's very jewish and he's speaking to these disciples for a very specific reason i also believe that of course, it's speaking about the judgment of of God on this world, as we know. But also, there are going to be unbelieving Jews that know Jesus said something about this abomination that causes desolation. When uh, the Antichrist goes into the third temple that's yet to be rebuilt, he defiles it, and they're going to remember somehow, or look, or someone's going to tell them about to read what Jesus said to flee, and they're going to go, and they're going to flee. So that's another kind of people that are going to. Uh, receive this message and look at chapter 24 at that time. That's going to be very important for, for people. So the disciples here, they don't have any concept. This is important. They don't have any concept of the church age. They don't have any concept of the church, the Gentiles being grafted in or all those things that Paul talks about in Romans. Jesus has already talked about the church. And in their mind, that's, that's talking about an assembly. He doesn't understand, they don't understand the fullness of what God was doing. So they're not, this question that they're asking has more to do with Jesus' second coming and Him setting up His kingdom on earth in the millennium. The kingdom of God being set up. That's what they're wanting. Remember, even at Jesus' ascension, they're saying, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're, they're wanting the kingdom of God on earth. They're wanting that. They know that the scriptures teach that. They're wanting that. They're not thinking of any rapture. They're not thinking of the church age. They're not thinking of anything except Jesus physically coming back and and establishing his kingdom on earth and the millennium happened where there's peace on earth for a thousand years that the, that Isaiah and other pro- prophets from the Old Testament talked about that the Jews were very familiar with. So that's that's their mindset, and it's easy to to miss that or not know it. And so when when Jesus taught them to pray and said, "Pray thy kingdom come." Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That meant that the millennium of God setting up the millennium and setting up the kingdom of God on this earth. And so that's what they're thinking. That's, that's what they're anticipating. Because the church is not mentioned in the book of Revelation between chapters 4 and 19. The church is gone. And God deals with them. We looked at this when we went through Revelation verse by verse. He's dealing with the Jews. He's dealing with trying to reach the Jews and so forth. So, so there are uh, tribulation saints, but they're not. That's different from the church that are in heaven. We saw that we're up, we're worshiping the Lord. We're, we're up in heaven during the seven year tribulation. So he's not dealing with the church. He's dealing with the remnant of believing Jews that he talks about. So, verse four, that's a little background will help us. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you in the tribulation it'll be the one of the most intense times I would say the most intense time of deception that ever existed in this in the on this earth in terms of volume of of deception that's going on the amount of deception and that's why he says take heed that no one deceives you and so as with all these things we kind of see foreshadows of those things today we see widespread deception going on we see uh Churches leaving the word of God. We see people getting teachers that will give what their itching ears want to hear. And, and we see people departing from that. We see the world leaving, uh, even a profession or even like the things of the Lord or being friendly to the, to the church, the things of the, the Lord being Uh, disregarded and so forth. We see churches compromising related to God's word and all of those things. So of course we see the foreshadows of this, but this is, he's talking about in that seven year tribulation, there is going to be so much deception. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're going to be sucked in to all that deception. And you're going to believe that the Messiah or that the Antichrist is the Messiah. You're going to believe that it's so amazing having this peace, this pseudo peace that's going to happen, especially the first three and a half years, that that this has to be true. There's, there's, this guy has accomplished what no one has ever accomplished. And that deception is going to be very, very, very strong. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Just as a reminder, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, Christ is his mission. It means anointed one in Greek. It means, and it's, it's basically the Messiah. It's talking about the Messiah. So when he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Again, this is Jewish. They're going to be coming and saying, I am the Messiah. I am the, and they may use, jesus and say i'm the pre you know i'm the i'm the you know the last version of jesus or i'm jesus has come and i'm the messiah on earth today they may use his name or whatever but they probably will not even use his name as well saying i am the messiah that you've been uh waiting for and you know jesus talked about that related to the antichrist that you do not receive me i come in the father's name and you don't receive me but there will come one who comes in his own name and you will receive him jesus said that to the to the jews and then notice at the end of verse 5, he says, and will, not could, might, should, I, and will deceive many. Many will be deceived by these people saying, again, foreshadows today, there are people that claim to be Jesus. I remember when I was a new Christian, um, I worked at a mental hospital, and um, there were people that, believe that they were Jesus the Messiah. They believed that they were Satan. Believed they're you know all these things, and it's real neat to have a new believer in there <laughs> experiencing all of that. Um, but there are people that that will claim to be and claim to be today that they are the Messiah. I mean, there's how many videos have we seen, or or sixty minute specials, or this 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 guy in Korea, or this guy in this other part of the world, just say I'm the Messiah. I'm I'm Jesus Christ and reincarnated, and and people believe, but that is nothing compared to the deception that is going to come. People are going to be so deceived by all these fake messiahs, all these pseudo messiahs, and so um, they're just set up for it. Isn't this world set up for the Antichrist? Isn't this world set up for all these things that's going to happen? The one world government? It's all set up for the... the. Uh, You know, the, the, the way that you pay for things, the, the currency going to be electronic and all of those things. And we all have never come together as one world and all these things. They're all ready for it and they will fall for all of it. Verse six. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The Antichrist will be a man of war. And so he will be a brilliant military mind. The first half of the seven-year tribulation will be generally peaceful, but there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars and all those things. But generally, there'll be a time of peace, a pseudo-peace, and there's many prophecies about that just when you say peace, peace, and sudden destruction comes upon you and so forth. But there will be those things. And we see that today, again, foreshadows not the fulfillment of these things but foreshadows we see the world becoming more less and less stable and you know I, there might be major war before even you know we even get close to this there probably will be world war 3 I mean, that could definitely happen. We know there's going to be uh, Russia and these other countries joining with Iran and um, Ethiopia and all these other countries that join together and attack Israel That's Ezekiel 7 or 37, 38. You can read that on your own, and they're supernaturally conquered by the Lord Himself that comes to Israel's defense. Now most people believe that will happen in the seven-year tribulation, but it could happen other times at another time. But the point is, there's going to be more and more conflict and wars and so forth. He says, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom. So these things are going to happen. Again, by the way, these, these things that are occurring, coincide or line up with the sealed judgments in revelation six and you can write that in your margin revelation six and you can see that these sealed judgments that that come forth and i said at the time when we were going through that that you need these things line up with matthew 24 but again we're looking at it from earth's perspective now and 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 so they they line up perfectly and so these are god's expression of god's wrath on the earth he's telling the remnant the Jews who are believers there to be faithful, to not be stumbled by these things and, and that, um, that these things will n- lead to the end. And we'll get to what that means in a moment. He also says, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now that has, happens today. We think that our technology is going to solve that. And eventually, we're not going to have any pestilences. We're not going to have any famines at all. And maybe we can even conquer earthquakes with all our technology. And who knows? You know, Google is so impressive. Maybe they're going to find a way to conquer earthquakes. No, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. There's still going to be those things. And because God's going to... He's going to be dealing with the earth. The earth, the people of the earth that, that aren't saved, they think they can keep doing what they're doing and there's never going to be repercussions. And there are going to be repercussions when they die. If they die without Christ, there's immediate repercussions. But also related to this world in general, God's going to pour out His wrath upon this this earth, and it's going to happen. Now, some people say, "Well, it's just too general. We've always had those things, and so you know, it's, it, there's no way that we can say that those things are fulfilling prophecy and all of all of that." But the key to understanding the difference between those things generally happening and what Jesus is talking about right now is really Verse 8. Look where it says in verse 8. It says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And that word sorrow is the word Odin. It means birth pains. So I'm not an authority on birth pains. Okay. I'll be the first to say that. I won't even pretend to know what that's like. I know better than that. But, and so in some ways, women that have had children can understand what Jesus is talking about greater than, than man can who's never had uh, babies. And, and and so this is the thing with from from what I've been told, okay? I'm not an expert, nothing of those things, but what I've been told about labor and I know nothing experientially, just all the disclaimers, you got me? Okay, we're good. All the disclaimers. That is that they they grow, the labor pains grow in intensity and frequency. That's what we need to understand about what Jesus is talking about here. He said they're the beginning of those things. It's like these things, these judgments that God lays out in Revelation chapter 6, starting to judge the world and all those things, they're the beginning. It's like labor pains are just starting. And so what's going to happen in the latter part of the seven years is going to be those things coming more more, more intense and more frequent in, in, in all of that. And so that's, that may help us with understanding kind of what Jesus is, is, is getting at. Next comes persecution in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to, to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many prophets, false prophets, will rise up and deceive many, even more deception. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. It's just going to be horrible. It's going to be horrible. What's going to be here during that seven-year tribulation? It's going to be horrific. It's just they're going to be persecuting those that are tribulation saints. They're receiving Christ from those 144,000 and so forth, and they're going to be receiving persecution like crazy. And of course, that happens today. We see foreshadows of this. and I believe that persecution is going to get greater and greater all the way until that time so that it's not only applicable to them, but he's mainly talking about that time it's going to get really, really bad. In fact, there's one point you remember when we went through Revelation when they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? He's talking about those that did not take the mark of the beast they did not submit to the antichrist they were beheaded that's why we're seeing more and more beheadings lately in the news and in the in the culture and terrorism and all that. It's desensitizing the world so when the antichrist starts doing it for people that refuse to take his mark it's going to be not as big of a deal because they're desensitized to that and they're going to be so deceived they're going to think that they have it coming that's how cold people's hearts will be So they're going to betray one another. They're going to hate one another. Many much deception from false prophets and lawlessness will abound. So all the moral things that Christians stand up for and the culture and all those things—they're going to be all you know free reign for lawlessness because believers, the church won't be around. And so that—that's just going to be mark this world. It's just do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want to do. You know the the theme for. Satanism, the guy who wrote the book and made it popular and all of that, it's called Do What Thou Wilt. Do What Thou Wilt. He doesn't say worship Satan, although he's not opposed to that, but his main thesis is do what you want. Do what you want is the fastest way to hell than just anything else. jesus I mean, Satan doesn't care if you worship him as long as you do what you want and don't obey what Jesus says and obey the Gospel and, and live your life how you want to and so forth, showing that you're not a believer and, and he's one. So he doesn't have to be worshiped in, in, in that way whatsoever. So this whole thing about the end of verse 13 where it says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now we're so used to word, using the word saved, that you're saved spiritually, that we can think that that's what he's getting at. But there's many ways that God uses the word saved. He uses it for healing, physical healing at times. Um, Because the prayer of faith will save the sick. We're told in James, we're told, when he was on the cross, they said he saved others, but he can't save himself or let him save himself. We know that in scripture it also means salvation. You know, uh, that's the main context that we use it for. But here, he who endures to the end, what is the end, first of all? The end of the seven year tribulation when Jesus comes. He who endures to the end, who makes it, Being faithful all the way to the seven-year tribulation, the end of that, will be delivered, physically delivered. And again, what are the disciples, the Jewish disciples, asking about? They're asking about the kingdom age. They'll be physically delivered into the millennium, alive. That's what he's talking about uh, there in the end of verse, at the end of verse 13. Then he says. And the gospel, verse 14, and this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So during that seven year tribulation, again, the 144,000, they're going to preach the gospel to everybody that they can, that'll listen. And many, many Jews will receive Christ, and others will evangelize the world. And when that is completed, then Christ is going to come back physically to this earth and set up his kingdom and i believe that's why it says in the middle of verse 14 the gospel of the kingdom because the kingdom is going to be set up when jesus physically comes back to this earth he's going to sit on the throne there he's going to rule and reign satan's going to be bound for a thousand years sequestered away in the bottomless pit and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years and at the end of the thousand years there's still going to be some that want to rebel Satan will be loosed they'll be devoured from heaven then there'll be the great white throne judgment and then a new heaven and a new earth will be created that's the that's the timeline there so the end of the seven-year tribulation when Christ comes back will happen when all of the gospel preaching occurs in the seven-year tribulation now he gets to the middle of the tribulation with this abomination desolation in verse 15 Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, a prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, only Jews would understand what this is. Gentiles would not understand what this would be. So, this, that's again, he's speaking to Jews. And so, this had already happened once. There's in prophecy, and how you interpret prophecy, there's near fulfillment and far fulfillment. The near fulfillment, uh, of the first abomination that causes desolation that Daniel wrote about was in 168 BC. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple. He slaughtered a pig on the altar. He spread the blood on the altar and, and to Zeus as worship to the false god Zeus. And so it fulfilled what Daniel said in the near sense. But then Jesus talks about it here as if it hadn't been done yet. So there's another time that this, that prophecy will be fulfilled and that's talking about in our future there's no temple on the temple mount now there's a temple institute that's making all the things for the coming third temple there and and so because of the dome of the rock mosque on the temple mount there people have thought that's no way that could be possible but again the antichrist is going to be an incredible peacemaker pseudo peacemaker and he's going to make this peace covenant for seven years and when he signs that peace covenant with Israel and other, others probably, that starts the seven year tribulation, not the rapture, him signing that peace contract. And likely that will include them rebuilding that temple. Again, I told you it's not very big. So they're going to rebuild that temple. All the, all the things that are, go inside are already been, have been made. And, and that thing's going to be going. And so he's going to go into this Antichrist, going to go in there and proclaim himself to be God. Second Thessalonians reveals that as well, in addition to Daniel. And so he's saying, when you see that happen, talking, talking to Jews, he says, you, 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 you need to understand something. And now we know that the the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And we know that John wrote about 20 to 25 years after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. He actually measures the temple and he talks about a man coming into the temple and defiling it and coming into the city and all these things. So again, there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment there. And so Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in the near sense in 168 B.C. and in the far sense it will be fulfilled with this abomination that causes desolation because this marks the halfway point of the tribulation. The last half of the tribulation is referred to as the great tribulation. The judgments that have been happening with the seal judgments have been judgment and so forth. But again, Jesus said it's the birth pains it's it's just the beginning of those things god's intense judgment now with the great tribulation is provoked and the catalyst for it is the of antichrist going into the third temple and desecrating it and then the jews and he tells the jews to flee and and they do it says in verse 16 when that happens then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains again he's talking to jews let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Again, talking to Jews. For then there will be, notice the next word, great tribulation. That's why it's called the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, talking about physical deliverance, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. 75% of the world's population are going to be killed by the end of the seven years. Only 20, only a fourth of the world's population will be alive at the end of the seven year tribulation. That's how bad it's going to be. And so the, God has always referred to the Jews and that remnant as the elect. Look at Isaiah chapter 65. When he talks about the millennium and all these things, he refers to them as the elect. Now these are going to be elect in the sense that they're, most of them are going to be disciples of Jesus. So they're elect in that sense, but they're also God's elect in being God's chosen people as well. So there's kind of like a, a double election in, in that sense. So he's talking about them. And if it weren't, the days weren't shortened, no one would survive, especially God's elect. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. So, there's foreshadows of this. I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus came back and he's in Brooklyn. I don't know if you knew, I don't know if you knew that. They say he's visible in Brooklyn at their headquarters and he came back in 1914. So obviously that's false. That's a foreshadow, right? But there's, there's gonna be, this is gonna increase so great in the, in the seven year tribulation. It's gonna be so much deception because, and that, you know, kind of, it's kind of like how in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended, the uh, the angel said, why are you looking up? This same Jesus is going to come back the same way that He left. He's going to come back. Everyone can see it and so forth. Again, this is talking about the second coming and God setting up His kingdom on this earth in the millennium, not the rapture. The whole focus is on His second coming. Verse 28, "...for wh- wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together to the other hold your place here real quick and turn over to Revelation chapter 19 (laughs) Revelation chapter 19 I want to read this in Revelation have us all read this verse 11 Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. We sang about that today. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, that's the government. That's the millennium. That's the kingdom on earth. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords amen let's turn back to Matthew 24 he's coming back to set up his kingdom and what he said in verse 31 is he's going to gather the elect I believe to Jerusalem for that moment for when when they come back when he comes back there they're going to be there for that event and so it's going to be a beautiful day and then he gets to this parable in verse 32 Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The key to understanding this generation is in the middle of verse 33. When So you also, when you see all these things, so the generation that sees all these things happening on earth, that generation will not pass away until all these things take place and he physically comes back. And then he adds in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. We don't know the timing of all of this. We don't and there's been all kinds of things and especially with the fig tree representing Israel people have said well Israel became a nation in 1948 that fulfilled prophecy so it's talking about the generation that saw that and they're stretching generations so far now that uh, it's basically beyond possible so he's not talking about that he's talking because in Luke it says the fig tree and the other trees so it's not just focusing just on the fig tree. He's saying trees in general give a sign that something's happening. And when you start to see things happening related to the blossoming and all of that, you know that summer is near. Just like when you see all the generation that's there that sees all these major signs going on, it's just like a fig tree or another tree that starts spreading forth the leaves and all that and you see that and then you know that summer is near and he's comparing that to that the second coming of Christ and setting up His kingdom is near when you when that generation sees all these things begin to happen. Verse 37, Now as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking... Marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Sometimes we hear people talk about Noah preaching the gospel and all. There's no evidence of that. I'm not saying he didn't, but there's no evidence that he preached the gospel or any of those things. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. So these verses, these two verses here, when he's talking about the times of Noah and them being caught off guard and all those things, that's that he's talking about judgment. There, these things are going to catch them. He's already said that when the when the Son of Man comes and the Son of God comes physically and he comes a second time, all the nations of the earth will mourn when they see it because they know they're not right with him. They know that, and they're going to mourn. And all these things, there's we're warned all through Scripture about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a, not just one day. It's a whole series it's time sequences that happen even after the end of the millennium is referred to as the day of the Lord as well. Not just this time in the tribulation. So it's a time of of God judging. We've already seen that. God's judging. God's judging. God's judging. So that's why you have to be consistent here when it says in verse 40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women are will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. It's in line with what he said about Noah and them being caught off guard and all those things. And Jesus coming and and them being caught off guard and mourning and all and all of those things. So being taken is not a good thing here. Being taken is something related to judgment. And we don't know specifically what it is, but it's linked to something that happens where people are not are caught off guard and 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 something happens that that they don't know what, what will happen to them. And everything. Now he continues, he says, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now we apply that to us today, which we can indirectly, because that's true from other places in Scripture. We're told that the rapture is going to happen at any time. We don't know when that's going to happen. It's always been communicated as imminent in the Scriptures and so forth. But he's specifically talking about them in the tribulation. They don't know the exact time that that the Lord Jesus is going to physically come back and set up his kingdom. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. Look at that. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And then he says, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made rule, that's a management word, over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes, notice the next four words, will find him so doing, or find him so do will find so doing rather. Doing. We're acting, we're doing something, we're we're being faithful, we're being faithful to what God's called us to do. We're being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us at that time. That's what he's concerned about. Assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart because God sees the heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So even though he's speaking to the Jewish remnant here we also again foreshadows we see that today And we do have a stewardship and we're supposed to be faithful with what God's entrusted to us right now our time our talent our treasure everything our relationships we're called to be faithful instead of thinking well you know we don't know the time so we're just going to do whatever we want to do and you know he because we want to be found being faithful when he comes but if we erroneously think that he's not coming for a long time then it works against, and we're not expecting Him, it works against us being faithful to what He's called us to do right now. And that's what He doesn't want. We want to be found. He's going to get into this next chapter with a lot of stewardship going on in the next chapter. We want to be found being faithful when He comes. We don't want to be in the middle of something horrible or disobedient or willful disobedience when He comes and snatches us and brings him to, uh, brings Him to Himself. But we can see these foreshadows. You know, Pastor Chuck used to always say, he'd tell the story where he would be talking to his wife, Kay, and they they would drive around and they would see the Christmas decorations up way, way early. And he would say, Honey, I love Christmas decorations. I can't wait to eat that Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) And she's like, Chuck, why would you say this about Christmas? You know, you're talking about Thanksgiving. And he said, well... If Christmas is really close, how much closer is Thanksgiving? Because it comes before it. And he, and he compared that to the second coming and the rapture. If we're starting to see these things get closer and closer related to the signs that are in the tribulation for the second coming, how much closer are we to the, the rapture of the church? Because there's nothing that has to happen before the rapture of the church to happen. No fulfilled prophecy needs to happen. Nothing. Nothing has to happen before the rapture of the church. God made it that way on purpose. It's, Jesus is our blessed hope. And and as we wait for Him, there's a purifying process that the Holy Spirit works in our lives so that we, when when He comes and snatches us away to Himself, Then we'll be doing things that are a blessing to him. And so that's an exhortation to us. God's called us to serve him with all of our hearts anyway, but especially in light of the fact that he could come snatch us away at any time. Because the difference between the rapture and the second coming, the second coming, he comes down to the man of olives and touches down. And there's a breaks, I mean, breaks up the, the mountain. There's an earthquake and all of that. He comes back to earth. The rapture, we're snatched away to him. We meet him in the clouds. We're, we go to Him. There's two different things that happen. We're supposed to comfort one another. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus for the, with the rapture. And so that hope purifies us, we're told, in Scripture. So He wants us to be faithful. And so it's a good time to, to think about that, to take stock. Are there areas in my life where I'm engaged in willful disobedience? Am I answering God's call in my life? Am I wasting time? Am I being a bad steward or a bad manager of His resources? Am I not doing what He wants me to do related to engaging my the rest of the body of Christ with my spiritual gifts or or whatever it is, sowing into His kingdom, whatever it is that He wants us to take advantage, to occupy till He comes, to be found faithful when He comes. He's going to really get into that next week in <laughs> chapter 25. He wants that for us. We want to be a blessing to him when he, when he snatches us away, when he comes for us, blows that trumpet or, you know, the trumpet call of God and so forth. He wants, he's supposed to comfort one another with those words, right? That, that comfort comes by us being right with Christ of course spiritually and knowing that we're saved but also being faithful to what he's called us to do you know Hebrews chapter 12 talks about lay aside the sin and the, and the weights and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that has been set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith and, and it's such a great example for him how he was so undistracted and so focused on what God had called him to do to please the father he said i always do those things that please the father he wants us to be able to say that now obviously he knows we can't be perfect and we're going to fall short but he wants those things to increase in our lives so that we can say we're growing if we're not growing and going forward there's something wrong he hasn't left our spiritual development up to us and the pace with which we grow up to us as we yield ourselves to Him every day and, t- and wake up and say, Lord, you're my Lord. I'm settling the Lordship issue today. I'm taking up my cross today and I'm following you and all of those things. That leads us to where He wants us to go. He hasn't said, you grow as fast as you're comfortable with. However you want to grow, however fast you want to grow, however slow you want to grow, it's up to you. You can do as, grow as little or as much as you want. He hasn't done that. Every day as we yield our lives to Him and obey what He's called us to do, that day, that leads us to the place and the rate of maturity that He's called each one of us to do. We're so self-focused in our culture. We think it's all about us. It's all about Him and our calling. And He said, come follow me. That means no negotiations, no contracts, no riders, no signing bonus, no uh, guarantee that I'm not going to go here or there. It's giving my life for Him and letting Him do with my life as He pleases. And it's a beautiful privilege with how our lives were spent before on all that garbage. And now we get to have our, him spend our lives for eternity and the things of eternity that will not pass away. What a privilege we should be so passionate and focused on fulfilling the calling that he has for each one of our lives, not wasting time, but redeeming the time we're told. And that's when we do that, that's when we can say, Lord, come back any moment. I'm ready. You'll find me being faithful. You'll find me being faithful to You by Your grace, by Your power. So let's let us let the Holy Spirit take that and use that in our lives, especially now as we get ready to worship. And let's make some decisions between us and Him. And let's see what He might do by His Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You, Lord, that we're on the right side of truth. Thank You, Lord, that we're not going to be in that tribulation. Thank you, Father, that you are, you haven't appointed us to wrath, Lord. Thank you that you've called us, Father, to, to, to be away from all of that. We would go through it if you had called us to, but you haven't. So we surrender to that, Lord, but we want to, we want to be a part of fulfilling your great commission. We want to be obedient to that. We want you to save people through our lives. We want you to disciple people through our lives. Help us to redeem the time and take this time seriously that the, that we have we recognize father we don't know how much time we have and when you call us home and wait in times where we don't expect so help us to just have the sobriety that you intended for this passage in our lives lord especially as we worship now and seek you and your voice by your holy spirit in jesus name amen